Coming up this hour, we're going to tackle some headlines, and then we're joined by Evan Welcher, author of How We All Need Advent. You're listening to The Common Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you joining us on this Monday afternoon. It's the first, it's the first Monday, it's the Monday of Christmas weekend, so uh, that feels like a big deal. Ian, I don't know, I, I, I think I feel this way every year, but Christmas feels like it kind of snuck up this year. Do, do you feel that way? I, I can't believe it's Christmas week. Brian, you say that every year this week, every time. I just How years I, have we done this over Christmas? Listen, I yeah. I've been listening in your conversations for a while. Every, <laughs> I was like, I mean, how long we've we been together? <laughs> it's I don't even say it anymore because I feel like all of my adult friends they always every it's like uh it's like when you become an adult, this is one of the things you have to say, like, boy, I really yeah. snuck up in you this year. I'm like, I've been saying this for two decades now. I'm just gonna assume it's always gonna feel like it snuck up on me. It does feel like it did this year. I don't know if that's pandemic or just being old, one of the two, but it's uh, Christmas week. So we hope that uh, if you're finishing off the work week, that uh, all goes well and Christmas is coming. One thing we like doing here uh, is that we we don't try to be as, you know, throughout the show, completely newsy, like what's going on today. But we do try to start our show by hitting some of the headlines. And I, I put four of them here and they're all somewhat pandemic related a uh, little bit different from each other so ian there's four for you to choose from many it's kind of a choose your own adventure why don't you uh, jump us into one of them this is the worst choose your own adventure book i've ever read <laughs> they're all sort of pandemic related and uh you choose choose your own adventure one of them is happy <laughs> it's like walk through any of these doors you're going to be assaulted in some way shape or form but you get to choose like the pandemic wow. is on the other side of every door <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? so not really a choice this feels like there's a theological joke i can make somewhere in here but uh i'll do canada since i grew up sort of canada adjacent uh, in detroit Britain cut off by Canada and others as new COVID strain spreads. Crisis meetings were scheduled in London and Brussels as officials grappled with the new variant, which could be up to 70% more infectious. Why don't I just stop there? What is happening? <laughs> Jeez Louise. What do you make it this we- do you remember when we first started this and there was murder hornets and then there was this uh-huh. and that feels well, like this one. I remember uh, when we were talking about this in March too, the first couple of weeks we'd be like, Hey, sorry for more COVID news. We don't I want it to be everything we talk about it, but you know, we felt like sheepish about it. And now it's like, Sure. Of course, a third of our show every day is going to have something to do with the coronavirus. At least, at least. You know what? This one is scary. Uh, yes. Uh, especially I was watching the Today Show this morning and they went on to say that a lot of the scientists who study this stuff are in Great Britain. And so they're guessing that it's not only in Great Britain right now. And I was like, oh, great. Uh, yeah. Now, the one good thing that they did say is that uh, they are fully confident that the vaccine uh it takes a virus multiple years to kind of morph to the point that a vaccine doesn't work. Think about the flu vaccine. Sure. Uh, and so the vaccine is still going to work. And so my thought first, I was, okay, good. <laughs> so there, but yeah, the fact that the coronavirus is morphing COVID-19 uh, is, uh, is a little bit terrifying. Uh, the next one we'll do here, a little happier. Congress finally reached a deal. Hopefully uh, both sides, both the House and the Senate sign it and the president signs it on a $900 billion COVID-19 relief package. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what does that mean for some of us? Uh, a, uh, it extends the unemployment 
benefits that were supposed to run out. There's some more small business loan stuff in there. Uh, and for families, uh, it is basically a $600 basically per adult and child in your family. So another stimulus check uh, right at the holidays. And so, uh, you know, I know there's, you know, bigger health stuff and all sorts of stuff, but this is uh, this is welcome, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I was afraid that the next stimulus was going to be in camel cash. So I'm just <laughs> grateful that it's actual currency. Again, on the global scale, uh, nah, never mind. I'm not going to go there right now. Never mind. Never mind. Yes. I'll say it's welcome. I'll do that. I'll there stop you there. go. You were about to you're about to rain on our parade. I just want to go. You know what? The six hundred dollars per uh, per adult and dependent is going to be is going to be gladly uh, gladly accepted. We'll put it that way. I'm not saying I wouldn't be glad to accept it. I'm just saying band aid on a wound that needs surgery. Right. That's that's yes. how that feels to me. Personally, I'll give you that one. Okay, yes. I appreciate that. I'm gonna save. Yep. I'm gonna save the church one for last because that's gonna be a real strong way to end the show. Uh, the next one here is CDC advisory group: older adults, frontline essential workers to get COVID vaccine next. Vaccines are expected to start going out to those groups in the coming weeks. How old is this article? Uh, well, no, this is the problem. It's not old. Have you been seeing the uproar oh, yes, this yes, weekend? Yes, yes. Right. Uh, the uproar over congressmen and congresswomen and like uh, mm-hmm. at at hospital at like colleges where the president or the administration's getting it before the hospital workers. Yeah, yeah. this has been a big deal, I think. I, I think it's it should be a big deal. I will. I think I actually even made a post about this. Like, you know, I don't think I realized how many of my friends are frontline essential workers. But when I was scrolling through my feed and seeing all these people that I like know and care about deeply getting the vaccine and some of them like with tears in their eyes, you know, getting mm-hmm. the vaccine so they could, you know, kind of head back into the war zone. I thought, man, I don't know. It like really moved me in a very strange way as, as I was yeah. just kind of scrolling Facebook. So, you know, I, I know that there's a lot of other drama surrounding this right now, which is unfortunate to say the least. I totally get, uh, not saying I agree with it, but I get the, con- you know, the people in Congress getting it. So, you know, our government and this and that. But I just wish they there wasn't so many posts about it and them going, look at me. Like, yeah, right. Like maybe maybe Marco Rubio saying I need to get better tan on my arm <laughs> isn't the best route to go. Yeah, it, it uh, feels tone deaf. Like it feels disconnected, you know, it does. And I understand the arguments for it. But, man, you would like to think, yeah, you know what? We as a society, we're going to give it to frontline workers and most vulnerable. That's who's getting the vaccine. Seat yeah, first feels right. feels to be proper. Well, you mentioned the last one, Southern <laughs> California mega church that thumbed its nose at COVID has an outbreak, but what? doesn't want anyone to know. I'm sure uh, this is we did this story so many times. John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church, uh, and he he very famously earlier on in the pandemic said, we're going to meet no matter what. No masks, full house. And he's kind of been the tip of the spear, if you will, for big churches meeting. Uh, and now uh, California is having a, quite an outbreak right now. Uh, and now there's a report, although some people within the church are disputing the report that there is a bit of an outbreak in his church. Uh, I don't even know what to do with this. What do you do with this? <laughs> um, what I kind of want to ask you is, is there any part of your brain that thinks yeah yeah it could it could be in some people's best interest to start a rumor about a church that actually isn't true like could you conceive of a universe where that happens where like a couple people got together or even you know media people got together to create a narrative about a church that isn't true like is that 
within the realm of that possibility? Would, that would that would never happen. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, that's a valid point. Because like, like I said, the people who run the church are saying this isn't true, but other people and uh, or that there's been a couple cases, but we didn't tell them to be quiet. So yeah, what you're saying, I think that's the hard part with. I almost said 2020, just with this culture we live in, you just never know anymore. Yeah, <laughs> Everybody right, kind of right. has their angle and they're all pushing it. And so you can see the article, decide for yourself up at our Facebook page. Well, coming up next, we're going to be joined by Evan Welcher. Evan is the lead pastor of Vine Street Bible Church in Glenwood, Iowa, and the author of an article that we discussed last week from the Gospel Coalition about how we all need Advent, especially this year. We're going to talk to Evan. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined by the author of an article that we discussed last week out of the Gospel Co- Coalition. Uh, his name is Evan Welcher. Evan, thanks for joining us, man. Good to be here. Why don't you, just so our audience can get to know you a little bit, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience however you'd like? Well, I'm the senior pastor of Vine Street Bible Church in Glenwood, Iowa. I've been there about 13 years, and it's a a church that's the result of a merger of two 150-year-old churches that were right next door to each other. And uh, it was a a Christian church and a Baptist church. And, um and what had happened was, like the article talks about, my first wife, Danielle, died. And as a widower, I was just trying to stay busy. And this Baptist church next door needed a pulpit supply. And so I would preach at my church, walk out the door, um, down the sidewalk, up these big old stairs where the Baptist <laughs> church's service was already beginning. It was already in progress. And I would just preach again, like right after my, my wow. first sermon. And we did that for about three and a half years. And after all that time, it was like, why don't we just merge these churches? So that's, <laughs> <laughs> so that's my church. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that as the sale pitch is you're like, Hey, yeah. Ecumenical reasons, blah, 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 blah. Just so I don't have to walk anymore though. Can we just- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bring I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you, you mentioned this article at gospel coalition, which we'll talk about a little bit later. It's about Advent and it's, it's beautiful, but I kind of just want to ask you pastor to pastor, what has it been like? pastoring during a pandemic this last year? Oh, man. Well, it's kind of like what everyone's probably saying. It's just been very hard, very difficult. Um, I do believe that the pandemic for the church has been a test from the Lord. I know that's not popular to speak of God um, in that fashion anymore, but I I do think it's a test that Mm -hmm. we are meant to pass, um, that we are meant to endure, and that God's people should keep that in mind. Yeah. And you told the story earlier of uh, merging of two churches. Now, I've never been a part of anything like that, but everyone who has tells me it's one of the hardest things they've ever done. Hmm. What was it like to merge two churches? A lot of bump, a lot of roller coaster. What was that like to merge two churches? Yeah, that was work, man. That was work. (laughs) And, uh, you know, both churches were 150 years old, founded in 1857, and they both had ways of doing things. And, and unfortunately, sometimes churches have a reputation for being a little territorial, and there's there's truth to that. And so, even years into it, you know, there's still issues, to put it 
politely. Sure. And but unity is all over the Bible. You know, we we might joke about being ecumenical, but there is a real command from God that God's people should be different and and should get along and love one another and. And just having a different name on your church's sign shouldn't be uh, insurmountable. Yeah, no kidding. Well, one of the things that always kind of blows my mind is when someone is in like full-time vocational local church ministry and they're actually able to somehow write books. Like I have a hard time <laughs> being a pastor and reading books, let alone <laughs> like putting any thoughts together. How, how do you make time for that? What's it like? being an author or even having like sort of an author sentimentality in the midst of a bizarre year, like 2020. Mm-hmm. Well, I never said I was a good author. So that helps a lot. I mean, just, <laughs> I'm just scribbling stuff down and, and throwing it against the wall and hoping it sticks. So right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Evan, uh, as we said, we discussed last week, an article out of the gospel coalition that was titled, Oh, how we need advent. And then parenthetically this year, uh, more than most. And before we dive into that, a lot of the article, and I think what we really appreciate it was it's, it's just you being very vulnerable about uh, some tragedy in your life and just some struggle. If you don't mind, would you tell our audience, uh, I know it's a much longer story than you have time for, but would you tell our audience a little bit of your story? Sure. When when me and my first wife got married, we were uh, about 28 years old and we were newlyweds. And about a year and a half into our marriage, she started coughing. This cough wouldn't go away. Mm-hmm. And eventually we found out there was a baseball-sized tumor um, in her chest. And so we went through this couple-year journey battling lymphoma, which morphed into leukemia. And eventually she died, went home to be with the Lord. Wow. And that will mess you up, guys. I mean, it's 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 brutal and tough and heartbreaking and and you either run away from God or you run to him mm-hmm. and lean into what you say you believe and for me as a writer one of the ways I processed it was just I had to write it out and and I had to lean into the doctrine of resurrection mm-hmm. and this this whole idea I came to the conclusion that the church exists to prepare people to die well and we are here proclaiming the good news of Christ to help people die well and put their faith in the resurrection from the dead and the new heavens and the new earth. And that has to be foundational to everything we're doing. Wow. It's something that we've talked a lot on the show, especially this last year about like needing space for lament and how, you know, so often in our sort of pop Christianity and a lot of the songs we sing on Sunday are always like celebratory. They're always kind of up and in major keys. And mm-hmm. like, do you, do you have a sense that like lament is something that the church is sort of reawakening to right now? Like, is that, is that something valuable for us heading into 2021 that we need to learn how to better grieve and lament? Absolutely. And, and I think with the pandemic, we're seeing the unhealthy fruit of a uh, a, the- a theology of glory where we got to be winning all the time and we got to be on top all the time and we got to be number one. And it's not scriptural. The savior we claim to worship, he was called the man of sorrows. Mm-hmm. There's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. And and just to put it super clear, we just got to knock it off. This idea that <laughs> you got to be doing good all the time. It's, it's not Christian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Evan, with like the last minute and a half or what's what we have on this segment, we're glad Evan's going to join us for another segment where we really dive into his article about Advent and how his story has kind of pointed him uh, to some reflection on Advent. But you said something that kind of perked my ears a little bit. And I wonder if there's people out there wondering, hi, I don't really get what he said when you said the purpose of the one of the purposes, at least of the church, is to help prepare people to die. Uh, I think that's exactly how you said it. What exactly could you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean by that statement? Well, we're all going to die. <laughs> you you wouldn't believe, I say that a lot in my sermons, you're all going to die as a premise for why what we're talking about from the Bible matters. Mm. You know, the why do we have an eternal perspective? Why is it important that when the Messiah came, he, he died on a cross and he rose again from the dead and God and his plan did it this way for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so we should emphasize what the very life of Christ emphasizes, which is death and triumph over death and the de- defeat of death and the works of the devil. And this all matters. Mm-hmm. And if the church isn't emphasizing that, we're playing games. Mm-hmm. We're, and we're, it's a dereliction of duty and on behalf of pastors like ourselves, if we're just trying to help people feel good about themselves without emphasizing what the scriptures emphasize. We need to help people pr- be prepared to die well. Mm-hmm. And as you guys know from pastoral ministry, that doesn't always happen. You know, the, one of the best things in the world is when you, back when we could go to hospital rooms, mm-hmm. you walk walk in there and you got a senior saint who says, I'm ready. I mean, that's that's one of the best feelings in the world because mm-hmm. you know that the church did its job. Evan is a pastor, the lead pastor of Vine Street Bible Church in Glenwood, Iowa. And uh, the, what, what connected us with Evan was the article he wrote uh, at the Gospel Coalition called, Oh, How We Need Advent, and then parenthetically, This Year More Than Most. And so, Evan, let me just kind of start really kind of big picture. Why do you, why do you say that we need Advent this year more than most? Advent's this thing built into the church calendar that talks about maybe not having everything you want and waiting and having anticipation and and still hanging on to faith doggedly in the midst of darkness. And I think for the first time in a long time, at least in our generation, this pandemic has put everybody kind of on the same playing field where we're all feeling the same tensions. And so we need this idea that we're waiting on the Lord now more than ever. Yeah, I love that. One of one of the lines in this this article, you said, Advent is the rusty nail holding us together until resurrection day. I think honestly, when we were reading it on the air, we both were like, oof. Like that to me, <laughs> yes. and and this is a bit of a hobby horse, Evan, but like so often you know, at least in the West, Christmas starts uh, shortly around Halloween and <laughs> it's just nonstop Christmas and celebration. And then December 26th, we take everything down and you're like, nah. So like for me, yeah. and, I, and I don't, I, I didn't necessarily grow up liturgical, but like, why do you think Advent as something to like observe or as some of our brothers and sisters say, they keep Advent? Like, why is that so significant? And why do you think we skip right over it so often? Mm-hmm. Our culture just loves winning all the time and feeling <laughs> good all the time. And, and we like, we like the mountaintops without the valleys and and frankly, that's why so many people who are going through a hard time just cannot relate to church, you know. And and I remember feeling that after after my wife died, like I I could not listen to 
uh, Christian radio, the songs were just not, they were not talking about where I was at. And uh, it kind of annoyed me. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you say here, Christ's first advent reminds me that God also understands incarnated love stolen by death. That is a great line. I'm, I'm wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for people who might be like, oh, I think I get that, but help me understand. But then more so, after you unpack it, I would love for you to talk about how did that truth actually help you as you were grieving and as you were dealing with the loss of your wife? Hmm. We pastors try to communicate to people that God understands when they're suffering, that God feels their pain. I don't think a lot of people believe that. And it's hard to convince people that this all powerful deity can understand what it's like to go without and to weep and mourn. Well, the incarnation is all about that. Hmm. And God, the father actually knows what it's like for someone he loves dearly, God, the son to suffer and die because Christ died on a cross. And so, when we're talking about 1 Corinthians 15 and how the last enemy to be defeated is death, God literally has skin in the game when it comes to that. Hmm. And so he does know how you feel. I love that. Yeah. I've been wanting to ask you since we read this article, I find that a lot of times when people are very aware of their grief, they go looking for lament or you know a deeper understanding of the dark night of the soul. What do you say to the person who's listening right now that are thinking, I feel pretty good. Like, I don't even feel like I don't feel like I'm avoiding anything. My life is just pretty great. I don't feel like I'm running for any grief. Like, why do I need Advent or why do I need lament? Why do these things matter to the person who doesn't really seem to, at least currently in this space, experience much grief themselves? I'm happy for that person. You know, it's, (laughs) I mean, a lot of times we want to find great meaning in our suffering and, and almost over spiritualize people who have suffered. Hmm. And the reality is sometimes suffering just makes people worse and bitter. And so if someone hasn't gone through a hard time, I'm just super happy for them. Uh, the, The problem is it's probably coming for you. That's the reality of life under the sun. And if you want to keep your faith in the midst of suffering, the best thing you can do is prepare for it when you're not suffering. And so you, you build your foundations deep in the scriptures when times are good so that when everything's taken from you, you, you don't apostatize and you don't got to deconstruct and you can just say, I'm still leaning on Christ. And as we're in the midst of Advent, Ian, I think, uh, he, he does love to point out how we just rush to Christmas and everything's so busy and everything's so celebratory. Uh, as, pastorally, maybe what are you saying to your church or maybe what are you doing personally uh, during this Advent season? To put another way, what would you tell people out there? Uh, how should they spend even this last week maybe leading up to Christmas as we kind of continue to work our way through Advent? Yeah, people talk about how the last week of Advent, you know, the the light's coming, the darkness is going away. I, I see all these people talking about the solstice today. Mm-hmm. And I would just say, don't be afraid to to sit in the dark for a while and and just be be used to lament and be used to the pain in life and be realistic about it. Redemption's coming. Resurrection day is coming. Um, but we are better comforters of other people who have suffered when we, we sit in the sadness and the loneliness ourselves. So don't rush through it. I remember hearing a, a Russian pastor years ago. He said something like, he said, Christians are like nails. The harder you hit them, the deeper they go. 
And his point was, man, when we experience grief and sorrow, and actually, like you were saying, sit in the dark rather than rush past it, you know, sort of sit Shiva or whatever that looks like for us, there's a, a depth that's sort of carved out in us, or maybe, I don't know, roots go down deeper or what? What do you what do you see as some of the result of someone's willingness to fight the urge to just jump from joy to joy to joy to actually sit in some of the sorrow? What happens to a person or a soul when when we do that? You get deeper. Like yeah. I like what that pastor said. I think it's true. You become more like Christ. Um, he didn't he didn't rush away from the hard and thin of life. Right. And you think about how he let Lazarus die and and he was he was a savior who was willing to go through hard things with his people because he's a good shepherd. Mm. And if we want to be like him, it sounds cliche and almost too simplistic, but if you want to be like Christ, you have to go through some of the things that he was willing to go through. Mm-hmm. And he talks so much about being a servant of all, and that's not popular now. And I, I think somehow in American Christianity, we've forgot Christ, the the simple life of Christ that you find in the Gospels. We need to return to that. Mm-hmm. And Evan, with like the last minute we have, you've done such a good job with this already, but I'd love for you to speak specifically to the person in their car or listening just in their home going, oh my gosh, I'm in the midst of such heartache and life feels upside down. Yeah. Could you pastorally and from your experience, just speak hope to that person right now? I would say that God doesn't love you any less, that you don't lack faith. That's another mm-hmm. pernicious lie that you suffer because you didn't believe hard enough or well enough. I think the examples of all the great saints in the Bible is that a lot of them had shoddy lives and they suffered a great deal. And you should take comfort in the fact that this isn't happening to you because you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's not happening to you because you lack faith. It's, it's life under the sun. And the good thing is the darkness doesn't last forever. God does love you and resurrection day is approaching. Mm. Evan, thank you so much for joining us. That's Evan Welcher, pastor of Vine Street Bible Church. Before we let you go, Evan, could you just tell people where they can find your writing, blog, social media, wherever else they can find you? Yeah, this whole Advent article was about an Advent devotional I wrote, Advent, A Thread in the Night. You can find that on Amazon. You can find me on the Twitter at Evan Welcher or the Instagram at Pastor Evan. (laughs) Well, Evan Welcher, we are really grateful for you joining us. Like we said the other day when we discussed your article, we were like, oh, we need to have him on. This would be great to talk about and uh, certainly did not disappoint. So, Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Good talking to you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Monday afternoon. Hope you're having a great kickoff to your week here. Uh, And one of the things that we all know is Christmas is coming. Christmas will be here later this week. Uh, And so a lot of Christmas Eve services, a lot of people reflecting upon the incarnation, upon the birth of Jesus. And as we do that, one of the most popular things we sing about it, we talk about it, is Jesus being born in a barn, Jesus being born in a stable. And we did a story last week, kind of 10 things people believe about Christmas, 10 things Christians believe that may or may not be true. Uh, And one of them talked about, was Jesus actually born in a barn or born in a stable? 
Uh, and I was scrolling Twitter this week and, and who had a post, but my co-host Ian Simpkins, uh, that I know we joke about this all the time, man. Uh, you, you do not pay me by the compliment, but I do really do. I, I really did appreciate what you had to write here. It gets me thinking. And then I saw the number of people who commented and shared it. And I said, ah, we have ourselves a segment. We've got ourselves a segment. <laughs> Ian also posted this or John, one of somebody on our team here posted this up at our Facebook page uh, on the Common Good Facebook page. Uh, but Ian, it begins this way. Was Jesus born in a barn? Personally, I don't think so. Let me explain. So, A, why are you a heretic? And B, <laughs> no, I found this fascinating. So either if you want to read it or just kind of summarize it, why do you uh, when you answer the thing, I don't really think so. Was Jesus born in a barn? Why do you think so? And then we'll talk about why does it even matter? Well, and I'm glad you asked the second half of that question, because I'm sure at first blush, people are like, who cares? Like right. stable, not a stable holiday in doesn't matter. You know, I think <laughs> one of the things I've been really convicted by as a pastor over the years, and we've talked about this even like in sermon writing that sometimes maybe we haven't talked about this on air actually, <laughs> but like <laughs> temptation to say, here's what the Greek word actually means in a sermon mm-hmm. is like ever present. And the pastor needs to do the hard work of asking, does this actually help anybody? Does this actually move the sermon along? Does it fit? Good or point. do you just want to, like try to look smart, <laughs> you know? So like, I think you're right. I think it does actually matter. So I guess I'll just read it. That's okay. It's not that long. Absolutely. I said, Luke chapter two notes that there is no room for Mary and Joseph in the inn. I have that in quotes. Now the Greek term translated in, uh, which is Cataluma had multiple meetings. This word is used only two other places in the new Testament. That's Luke 22 and Mark 14, referring to the quote upper room where Jesus observed the last supper with his disciples. There actually is a Greek word that more explicitly denotes an inn or hotel. In fact, Luke uses it in Luke 10 when he wrote about the Good Samaritan. That's a story a lot of us are familiar with, uh, who took the beaten man to the inn, which I'm not sure how to pronounce it, is Pandokion, I think, and paid the innkeeper to care for the man. So if Luke was familiar with the proper term for inn, why didn't he use it in the story of Jesus' birth? The likely answer is that Joseph and Mary didn't actually attempt to stay at an inn. The Bible states that there was no room for them in the Cataluma, which I think is better translated as guest room. In the first century, most Palestinian families lived in single room homes with a lower area for animals to be brought in at night. I actually include in this uh, a po- uh, an image that kind of shows mm-hmm. the the diagram of the house. The space for visitors and guests was typically in the back of the home or on the roof. So when the text says that there was, quote, no room, it's likely because a lot of people have traveled to Bethlehem and the guest rooms are already occupied by relatives who arrived earlier. Joseph and Mary then stay with the family in the main room of the entire house. I then mentioned a little bit about why the animals were brought in to protect them, not only from like the elements, but also theft. And in a lot of ways, they would like help provide heat for the house. Um, mm. which is why the manger part is mentioned that, you know, if you, and if you look at the image online, it would make sense then if you're in the lower level and there's animals here and there's a feeding trough, like, Oh, that's a pretty decent place to lay a newborn. So despite what many of us have heard or been, uh, or taught over the years, Jesus was not likely born in some cold, distant barn, isolated away from everyone else. It's much more likely that his birth took place right in the middle of the action in the beauty and commotion of a poor Palestinian family uh, family's living room. But why does any of this matter? Dick France explores this issue in his book, We Proclaim the Word of Life. I love what he said. He said, the problem with the stable is that it distances Jesus from the rest of us. It puts even his birth 
in a unique setting, in some ways as remote from life as if he'd been born in Caesar's palace. The message of the incarnation is that Jesus is one of us. He came to be what we are and fits well with that theology that his birth, in fact, took place in a normal, crowded, warm, welcoming Palestinian home, just like many another Jewish boy of his time. Jesus arrives not in some far-off detached place, but in the midst of the warmth and chaos of a loving family. Time and time again, he's proximate. He's drawing near. And this year, in the middle of our own chaos, confusion, fear, and grief, Jesus meets us in the mess. He is Emmanuel, not merely God for us or God looking after us, but God with us. And that is really, really good news. So that's why I wrote it, because I think exactly, I think, you know, I think uh, Mr. France put it better than I could, that, like, man, when we begin the story of Jesus in our minds as if he's just way over there somewhere doing something else that is completely different, unique, and isolated. Like, I think that actually has great impact on how we understand the incarnation and Jesus coming as Emmanuel, which may seem insignificant on the surface, but I I think it's a really important. When the author of Hebrews talks about, like, we don't have a high priest who's unsympathetic to what it means to be human. Like, that matters if he was just mm-hmm. you know a glowing hologram or whatever then he would have you know what i mean he would have no sense of right. pain and suffering and grief and exhaustion and fatigue and lament and i think the fact that he does know those things is interwoven throughout the gospels and that's why i think how we begin his story really matters yeah and i i, I remember the first time i even heard this as a possibility just kind of you know you have those moments where it's just i think of the mind blown you know meme just kind of what yeah right uh, but it, this ties into a lot of what Evan Welcher just talked to us about from his article about uh, the importance of just on the incarnation and what it means that Jesus uh, came and was among us. Uh, you, you said kind of uh, that, that it's really important for us as we consider the incarnation to just know that, no, no, Jesus is near, that it's dangerous even for us to have this idea that he was distant because a lot of us view him as diff- as distant. Uh, could you help the person out there right now who's going, you know what? I do kind of view him as distant. Isn't he just kind of this big God in the sky? Why does yeah, it even, yeah. yeah, is he near me? And why does that even matter? Yeah, I think, so my buddy Josh actually commented on this post so, somewhere and he talks about some, some other aspects. He said, well, there's, you, you have to remember too, that, you know, Mary by everyone's metrics was pregnant out of wedlock. So mm-hmm. there's other good scholarship that, asserts that like maybe he wasn't even welcome in his own family's home because of the didn't want that scandal under their roof right and you know even other elements like it's often depicted that it was like this quick one day trip to Bethlehem and like the day they arrived is the day Jesus was born that's also likely not the case at all so there's like some real like grit and humanness to the story and I think Mm -hmm. part of what the danger is at Christmas is we can tend to sort of sanitize the whole thing and it's got you know llamas with sunglasses in the back to kind of bobbing their heads to away in the manger and we (laughs) we move on like no there was like there's like grit and personality and fear and chaos and when we when we talk about the incarnation entering into a reality like that and not just the cover of a nice like Hallmark card, it forces us, I think, to grapple with the some of the baseline realities of the incarnation. And when we talk about of all the names that Jesus could have been given, right? And all the right. meaning that like like God could have chose or the scripture could have, you know, made the decision to highlight like Emmanuel God with us is a theme that was as important then as it is now. And I think when we sanitize it all 
and that's I realize that's a hot button word right now in the midst of a pandemic. But when we make everything squeaky clean and everything's got yeah. nice clean lines and it's nice and orderly and you know cute, we miss that like now. Jesus broke into the chaos of their situation as much as he wants to ours. And I think starting there with the nativity story is actually, at least for me, a really helpful way of, of reframing the whole thing. Roy, you're listening to the common good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about the Southern Baptist convention and critical race theory, Tiger Woods and his son, and then the hierarchy of grievances. You're listening to the common good. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Monday. So, Ian, we talked at the end of last week, uh, uh, kind of about uh, this. Uh, I almost used the word "blow up," but it's 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 uh, it's deeper than that. This this issue going on around critical race theory statement uh, in the Southern Baptist Convention, and so just a little bit of background, and you can read more yeah. if you just Google. But a little bit of background. Uh, the six presidents of the Southern Baptist Convention um, seminaries came out with uh, with an article or a statement um, against critical race theory. Uh, and that has kind of started a, a heated dialogue. We'll put it this way uh, throughout the Southern Baptist Convention. A, some people disagreeing with the statement, but other people saying, why is this the one that everyone's banding against when we've had all these other things over the years? Uh, and so mm-hmm. it's really kind of bringing up a lot of history and a lot of other stuff. And so uh, this kind of moved a little bit more over the weekend uh, when two prominent, this is a Christianity Today, uh, two prominent pastors break with the Southern Baptist Convention after critical race theory uh, statement. Uh, one of them being uh, Charlie Dates from right here in Chicago and also also Ralph D. West. They spoke out in response to the controversial statement released by seminary presence president. So that's the background. Uh, why don't you jump us into this Christianity Today article that talks about what these pastors had to say? Yeah, some of it's what you said already. The leaders of two majority black megachurches in major cities announced this week that they will no longer affiliate with the Southern Baptist Convention. In op-eds announcing their decision to leave, Charlie Dates of Chicago's Progressive Baptist Church and Ralph D. West of Houston's The Church Without Walls. Those are both great names, by the way. Both criticized SBC Seminary President's declaration that critical race theory was, quote, incompatible with the denomination statement of faith, the two pastors brought up recognizing the reality of systemic racism alongside the truth and authority of scripture. Last month in a joint statement and individual remarks, the six presidents of SBC seminaries called critical race theory, quote, unbiblical and instead emphasized the need to turn to Christian teachings alone, not secular ideas to confront racism. Quote, how did they, who in 2020 still don't have a single black denominational entity head, reject once and for all a theory that helps to frame the real race problems we face, Dates wrote in an op-ed Friday for the Religion News Service. The recent departures caused the attention of Southern Baptist leaders who were disappointed to see them go, particularly fellow African-Americans. The head of the SBC's National African-American Fellowship, which had raised concerns about the critical race theory statement, uh, a week ago, said he was, quote, saddened by the announcements. Quote, Marshall Osbury says they are good men who are sending a big message to the SBC. Dates 100-year-old congregation only began affiliating with the SBC last year, joining as a dual affiliation with the Progressive National Baptist Convention, a mainline African-American denomination. The young pastor said he had to convince his members that joining the denomination for the sake of mission partnership would be a good move. Can you let me stop there? <laughs> Can you imagine dates, by the way, just a year earlier, 
having to really make the case to his members. And then a year later, this is all happening. He's like, you know what? Never mind. You guys, I don't, I don't know. That would be a tough thing to lead through. Really you know what I mean? Would. Yeah. You, so what would you do? Well, like, how do you, how do you reconcile this? Like, what do you, we, I, we've not talked explicitly about CRT. And I, you know, I know that neither of us necessarily feel like we have a, a PhD in talking about it, but like, does this, does the methodology make sense to you? Is it sending the right message? Like how, how do you parse this all? Yeah. It, like you said, it's a little strange because a, like I had to read up on critical race theory, even this weekend and B, neither of us are in Southern Baptist convention churches. Right. And so it, right. a little bit like you're watching someone else's family go at it a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it is really sad. I read, I don't know if you read Charlie Dates's whole thing. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it really is. And, and I got more so, um, what I took from it more so was less about we are full-fledged believers in critical race theory and more like, why is this the battle everybody's fighting, saying we just have to take what the Bible says here? We can't learn from other things or discuss other things. Uh, and I think this feels like it pricked something uh, that has been underlying the Southern Baptist Convention. And I would, you know, probably a lot of churches and denominations, this kind of uh, the messiness and the uncomfortableness and the uh, and the amount of work that has to be done around race, because certainly these these these, uh, uh, you know, highly respected African-American pastors like dates uh, are going, hey, you're just completely picking a fight that's alienating me and, and you know, th- and, and my African-American brothers and sisters. Uh, and why is this the fight that we're choosing when we don't even have any African-American? Den- and you could see how it just kind of keeps going. Uh, like, here's yeah. the problems. Here's the problems. And for me, man, it highlights again. And it's easy to point fingers at the Southern Baptist Convention. This is problem everywhere right now in churches, in yeah. denominations, whatever else going. Hey, back in the summertime, we were all kind of having these conversations, racial reconciliation. What does it look like? How do we grow? And I think this highlights the amount of work and the messiness and just kind of the difficulty it is to even uh, know how to have the conversations that I think probably started very well meaning, but man, these feel like they're unraveling right now. Well, let me just read one sentence from the CT article because I think it's, I think it points to something bigger. It says, while West says he cannot offer a full affirmation of the theory, he does not see it as incompatible with the gospel. Mm. I think that's so well written and such an important thing, not just in this conversation, but probably a lot of conversations do you feel that someone, a leader, a congregant, a theologian, whatever, can hold intention while I don't I don't fully affirm everything this thing or movement or group says, I don't see it as incompatible with the gospel. Does that feel like a reality that you can live in or or would you say like nope, you you either need to fully affirm it or just simply say nope, it can't it does not it is incompatible with the gospel. Oh, I think that uh, right off the top of my head, I think that you can uh, pick and choose to be the right word. But I, I, I think we need to be uh, people who can have critical thought, right, who can look at something and go, yeah, you know what? They're making a great point here. You know, our, our, our faith in Jesus uh, kind of makes me believe that this part is off, but this part has something to say about how we're functioning culturally. I think you can. I don't think the same way I might be able to vote Republican and not look at their platform and go, yep, nope, hmm. I don't agree with any of it, therefore, or I don't agree with all of it, therefore, I can't agree with any of it. Like, I still think it could be a jumping off point for conversation. 
Uh, and when I read what Wade West and Dates had to say, uh, and I know Charlie Dates is local, we'd love to have him on to talk about it. But uh, I, when I read what they're saying, it, this feels more like a last straw than a kind of a foundational, you went against the theory that I full-fledged believe in. They're kind of, it feels like they're talking about like, oh, okay, this is still, uh, this is what I was hoping wasn't going to happen. It feels like that to me as I read that. Yeah, and I wonder too, because later in the article, it talks about a lot of the uh, the fear or pushback or or you know misalignment would be a larger conversation regarding what some might call quote secular thinking, mm-hmm. and you know other people have have talked about yeah the theory can be employed but only as long as it's subordinate to scripture, like. I don't, maybe I'm naive. I'm like, yeah, I sort of assumed we were all on in the subordinate to scripture camp. Like, <laughs> exactly. <I> thought, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not that controversial to me. But if there's a theory or new language or something that kind of helps like illuminate something that's true in the world or in some people's experiences, I don't, I don't exploring that to me doesn't seem to be insubordinate to scripture. And that seems to be where a lot of the disagreement is, is coming from right yeah, now. Yeah, and so it's it bears watching what's going to happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, you, you would just hate to see a greater split. You you would love to see, uh, I don't know, some positive fruit come out of this. So fascinating article from Christianity Today written by Kate Shellnut. She's been on the show before. Kate wrote this, two prominent pastors break with the SBC after critical race theory statement. We've got that up at our Facebook page. Give it a read. Tell us where we're off. Tell us where we're wrong. Uh, or some of your thoughts on it. Well, coming up next, lots of great sports this weekend, but I'm going to tell you what my favorite sports moment of the weekend was. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. If you've missed any of the show, uh, you can go to our Facebook page or to Twitter or Instagram at Common Good Talk. You can also go online at 1160hope.com, and you can also get our podcast. Wherever it is you get your podcast, subscribe, rate, and review. Well, uh, a lot, a lot, a lot of great sports this past weekend. I'm about to tell you what my favorite moment of the sports weekend was. But before we do that, speaking of my favorite moments, what were the holidays today? What are the holidays? (laughs) Not were. They are. Yeah, we're we're still still squarely (laughs) in today all right we got we got a bunch you ready for this mm-hmm. let's get let's get the state out of the way it's national main day ah. main the state not main the hair chief thing <laughs> yeah the, or the hair that's not where i was going at all but that's funnier uh all right so national french fried shrimp day mm. I'm, i don't know what that means well, i you ever had uh, french fried shrimp i'm not a big shrimp guy i'm gonna go out on oh that brian one. In any way, shape, or form, uh, not like with a, a, more, a good cocktail sauce. No, I'll or, eat it. Like if it's, you know, if I'm there, but I I would never, I rarely am like, you know what? I'm going to order shrimp today. So I'm pretty ambivalent <laughs> towards it. I feel like this part of the show is getting more and more benign with every <laughs> passing day. <It's, laughs> you know what? I'd eat it, but I wouldn't Love order it. it. <laughs> and then I go, mm, yeah, as long as it's between these uh, temperature, whatever. It's also... Uh, it's also crossword puzzle day. Oh, okay. You like crossword puzzles? Eh. Here we go. Now <laughs> I feel about shrimp. <laughs> I feel right. I feel about as passionate towards crossword puzzles as I do plain yogurt. That's you know what I mean. It's, <laughs> it's there. 
And in a pinch, it'd be fine, I guess. Okay. I don't know. I should be more into it. You know, I'm a words guy too, so you'd think I would actually really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. I just haven't. I haven't given it a fair a fair shake. It's uh, it's humbug day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, it is National Flashlight Day. Oh, man, these are so random. Okay, flashlight. <laughs> I, I could sign on to being pro flashlight. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is December solstice. We talked about that a little bit, right? Shortest day of the year. Uh, it's National Homeless Persons Remembrance Day. Why is that under weird? That doesn't make sense. Oh, yeah, that seems. That sounds like a le- like a legitimate one. Okay, this last one. This is uh, Phileas Fogg win a wager day. I don't have the first idea of what that is. Phileas Fogg. Um, gosh, is the, I think it was a is a character, wasn't it? I don't think it's a real person. I don't know. I don't know. We're gonna need to look that one up. I have. I, yeah, I think it. Wait, is I think it might be. Uh, not no, not Tale of Two Cities. Uh, Around the World in Eighty Days. I think that's from that. Okay, Does that sound right? If you did not Google that, that's impressive. I think. Well, my parents. I mean, homeschoolers, man. We we had to read all that <laughs> stuff on here. Always goes back to the homeschoolers. I don't. I feel like I'm going to Google anything. it now. Is that okay? Go for it. I'm going to Google it. Just for okay. affirmation. That's good. That's good. Um, <laughs> All right. So uh, best moment of the sports weekend. Let me tell you about it. And then by then you will have Googled this and you can tell us. Uh, So I, as you all know, I am uh, the big sports fan here and watched way too much football this weekend. Pro college football. Basketball is about to start college basketball. So all sorts of good sports. But let me tell you what my favorite uh, sports moment of the weekend was. Ian, did you see tiger woods playing in a tournament with his 11 year old son charlie this weekend i well not live but i i did see some uh some clips and photos yeah so it was flying around twitter first of all uh the fact that his son and him next to each other when they're on the range look identical to each other is pretty wild actually (laughs) unbelievable his son had like the same fist pump the same club twirl uh but to see the most famous golfer of all time Tiger Woods just uh, talk about how this was his proudest moment on the golf course. The guys won uh, the second most number of majors in the history of golf. Uh, But to say this was the most fun he's had. uh, And then there was this moment where they're in the middle. This makes me feel like, oh, my gosh, there are some people just playing a different game. 11 year old five wood from 175 yards away, stuck at the three feet. (laughs) That's Bonkers. And then, that's and then he putted in for Eagle, to which Tiger said, son, that's your first Eagle. Some of us have been playing golf for a long time. Never have Eagled a hole before in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was 11 year old. But man, as uh, Tiger Woods and I are essentially, I think we're the same age. I think we're both. I think he's 43. I'm 43 years old. Uh, wow. But Tiger said this on Saturday. He said, uh I don't really care about my game, Wood said Saturday. I'm just making sure that Charlie has the time of his life and he's doing that. Uh, I read this and I watched this and I was like an emotional wreck. Like, okay, this guy doing Mm -hmm. this with the sun because I'm not a professional athlete, but I've realized how much joy I get now from doing things with my children that used to just be about me doing it for myself, right? Like I used to mm. love to go golfing and like get out of the house for five hours. Now I'll go golfing with my son before I'll go golfing with anybody else, like stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and, and so I had this moment of like, man, 
Tiger Woods, just like the rest of us as dads going, I just want my son to love this, to have this memory. And I was like, I totally get that. And it made me just kind mm. of think about the many reasons I love being a dad. I know we talk about this all the time. Your kids super uh, a lot younger than my children. But do you already feel that change happening in your life? Kind of this perspective away from what you know you wanted to do and you towards kind of like uh, what your kids are about or towards your kids? Well, it, it's not uh, as on the nose as some of what you've described, but, you know, I mentioned that uh, our last church, Poplar Creek Church, was doing a uh, a live nativity kind of drive through thing. Yeah. It was so, oh, my goodness, dude, it was it was fantastic. I like got emotional. I was like, this is so cool. And so and they said they, you know, they have more people this year than they've had like, you know, three or four years combined because everyone's looking for something to do. It was everyone stayed in their cars and they had like six different scenes that you got to drive past. And they had an FM transmitter where you could like tune, you know, to the, hear the music and stuff from the different sites and a little thing to walk you through. Oh, it was so, it was so, so cool. Um, So it was just me and my boys and it's, you know, it's about 40 minutes North for us. So as we're driving there, Owen, my eldest, who's who just turned three a couple months ago, is losing his mind at all the Christmas lights, mm. just yelling and screaming, <laughs> "Green, Papa Green! Oh, Christmas tree, Christmas tree, Christmas tree, Christmas tree, Christmas tree, Christmas tree!" I mean, granted, we had just given him a cupcake, so he probably was like <laughs> yeah. a bit of a sugar. But like, I'm like welling up with tears, mm-hmm. like a real creep, as I'm hearing him experience the Christmas lights that I've driven past a thousand times. But like experiencing it with him and seeing it through his eyes is not quite what you're talking about. But I feel like it's the precursor yes. to getting to do like if one of them is really interested in drums, you know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's just going to, you know what I mean? And if they're not, that's totally OK, too. Like, I'm fine. I'm totally fine with that. Yeah. But I feel like I got a taste, a taste of it, watching how excited he was doing this thing and being able to, like, do it, like truly do it together and have him be you know aware of what really was happening was a gift three-year-olds in christmas are the best i can't agree more that is that is absolutely the case uh like i even know this weekend you know the weekend and it's nothing wrong with doing what you want to do but you know normally saturday it's been a long week want to do what i want or get something done around the house and i just looked at my youngest daughter i'm like you want to just go to starbucks and walk around and she was like yeah and it was the best man (laughs) like just Mm. being with your kids and i just i just wanted to bring up this story i so resonated with tiger saying uh, I just want to make sure that his son has the time of his life and he's doing that. It was just such a cool story. If you missed any of the clips, go check them out on Twitter. Okay. The last couple yeah. seconds, did you Google? Did you figure out where you're right? I, I don't want to brag, brag on here though. Oh, you deserve it. If you're right. 100%. He's the protagonist in the 1872 Jules Verne novel around the world in 80 days. I cannot believe that was stored somewhere in the deep recesses of my brain. And that right there, my friends, is an infomercial for homeschooling. <laughs> <laughs> that, right. You're not wrong, man. Coming up next, an interesting tweet about uh, kind of what is the church going to be facing in the coming months when we hopefully start moving out of the COVID-19 pandemic into a little bit nor- more normalcy. I want to read that tweet and reflect upon it next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Really happy to have you with us here. I was uh, perusing Twitter the other day, as one does, 
and came upon something uh, somebody had retweeted by somebody named David Cassidy. I don't know who David Cassidy is, uh, but uh, as you and I, I think he's a character in Around the World in Eighty Days. I think. <laughs> yes, he was the one. Ch- <laughs> yes, that he was racing the guy we talked about in the last segment. I'm sure that's right. <laughs> uh, he is also the brother of Butch Cassidy and uh, the Sundance Kids. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and so I nice. thought you and I, people know this if they've listened to this show at all. You and I are both pastors. Uh, and so our churches are at different spots right now in terms of what we're doing in the midst of the pandemic. My church uh, has a very controlled, smaller service going on, masks and uh, social distancing, signups, all that kind of stuff. Your church is uh, still completely virtual right now on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will come a day where hopefully we, we could go back to, I'm using air quotes here, normal, where hopefully mm-hmm. uh, people can come back, we can all be together. Uh, and and it, obviously, this goes without saying, you and I are super excited for that day to get here. <laughs> Just longing for yes. that day. Yes. Uh, but it is interesting, not just as pastors, but as just people who think about these kinds of things, people who attend churches, to ask ourselves, what's the church? What's ahead for the church? What is coming? What's ahead? What are some of the hurdles? What are some of the opportunities? Uh, and I found this tweet to be just a great dropping off point. So uh, jumping off, not dropping off, jumping off point. So uh, why don't you read this tweet from our, for us from David Cassidy? Well, I do want to mention, too, because I know some people are probably already thinking it. This is not. David Cassidy from the Partridge family, no, just so not. everyone. Oh, I went with Butch Cassidy, but yeah, that would have been the good one. <laughs> <laughs> just so, pe- just so people know, like, why are we reading why is a that? church quote from this? Right? Why is that guy to, weighing in on church? <laughs> <laughs> just want to make sure that was clear. But uh, here's what he writes: he "said After COVID nineteen is defeated, we will have to remember the church. Re hyphen member. I think it's a great word." Mm-hmm. Great work is ahead, and it calls for courageous souls who will patiently love the scattered, gracefully stitch the torn fabric of fellowship, invigorate worship, and create new avenues of mission and service. This is this is one of those moments where I'm actually grateful for like the limited post size yeah. of Twitter. Like I feel like it creates for some people a necessary. It, it helps make really concise statements like this. When I know that. Social media is full of all sorts of toxicity and awfulness. But like this to me, I like read it and thought, oh, that's succinct. But it like resonates. You're like, yes, that's yeah. that is what lies before us. And I'm glad somebody said it clearly like that, because I think that's a great I don't know, it's, it's great vision casting it in is. my mind. Well, so either take well, don't you take the whole thing when you go when, when you look at this in its totality. Why do you think he succinctly? What about his statement? Do you think are you resonating with it succinctly gets at what is coming for the church? Oh, good question. I think because it's holistic, like it's not just, you know, you you mentioned in air quotes when we get back to normal. I think for a lot of people, when they think about normal, uh, it means a little more than I can't wait for Sunday services to be mm-hmm. back like they were mm-hmm. and tweet. Right. Or for my social outings to look like they used to or whatever. Like the fact that he mentions loving the scattered gracefully stitching the torn fabric of fellowship, invigorating worship and creating new avenues of mission and service to me is like, Oh, he hit. I mean, obviously maybe somebody would disagree with, Oh, but you missed this or you left this part out, but it feels like he's casting a wider net in what we need to be working toward right now. And not just let's, let's not narrow our scope so minimally that like the only thing we're interested in is like, gosh, I can't wait till we're like in a room together in a way that it looked, you know, a year ago. 
He's like, yeah, that's part of it. That's probably the stitching the torn fabric of fellowship part. But like, there's just so much more opportunity before us and so much more work that needs to be done. So on one hand, you read it and you think, oh, yeah, there's a lot more repair that's needed and that can feel overwhelming. But am I, from where I'm sitting, I'm thinking like, yeah, but like, gosh, that is such an important thing now to be calling the church for so that when when things look differently or take longer or are more multifaceted than we anticipated, like you've you sort of laid the groundwork for people like, hey, this is the task before us. I think I think that's just as as best you can from Twitter. That's good pastoral leadership. Yeah, I, I really like that imagery of patiently loving the scattered because our churches feel scattered right now, right? They just feel and 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 this whole idea of needing to patiently love the scattered as hopefully they come back because uh, there might be this person might just be jubilant, jubilant, right? I'm back. But this person might be mad. Like, where were you for the last eight months? Why haven't you cared for right. me the way I needed caring? Uh, and that right. torn fabric of fellowship, right? My church and your church, both of our churches have the name community in it. Like we value this kind of church as community, church as family. And that's been lost for not completely lost, right? We've all tried to work over Zoom or over this or that. Uh, but that the fabric of fellowship is going to need to be kind of sewn back together and and almost yeah. there's going to be this reintroduction. That's why I love that he used the word re-member. Like it doesn't just say remember. Like I almost picture like yeah. I almost picture like we're going to need to look at the members of our church and be like, are you still here? Like, okay, are you still yeah. here? <laughs> like, are you still and like right. almost go person by person and, and do that. And um you know, as we think about the church reopen, I also like that he began with after COVID-19 is defeated, not like if COVID-19 is defeated, right? Like it was like this triumphant, mm-hmm. like after it's defeated. Uh, what are you looking forward to most? Uh, we often talk oh, about like that first day we're back together and you could go there. But what are you looking forward to this kind of work he's talking about? Give me like the first four to six months after things are again, quote unquote, normal. What are you looking forward to in that season of kind of after we've reopened Sunday morning and all that stuff. Okay. So I'll answer this a, a couple of different ways. Cause I, I actually don't think necessarily the first thing to come to mind for me are like, Oh, new things I'm not looking forward to or new tactics or new mm-hmm. strategies. Although that's definitely a part of it. Like when we think about our community cares effort, that's been a massive shift. That's going to, that's going to be a permanent fixture going forward. Right. Like we've realized like, Oh man, when we reorganize like the justice and compassion arm of our church, in this way, gosh, this is a better way to love people going forward forever. Like we, so there's been some really helpful, necessary things in that regard. I think, I think the things that we so easily took for granted are going to be so much sweeter. Mm-hmm. I think the small groups that we already liked, you know, people that we enjoyed and studies that we found, you know, rejuvenative or whatever. I think when we're able to gather in people's living rooms again and just break bread and just have a meal together. And I think there's going to be for a long time, I hope a real sweetness to like, gosh, not much has changed. Same living room, same group of people, same, you know what I mean? Same general structure, but we now have like this appreciation. I think that's a microcosm. And if you think of like small groups all over the world with churches all over the world, like being reawoken to, to just the beauty of the, yeah. the gathered people in whatever space they are. I think that that's, that's the thing I'm like really looking forward to. Absolutely. You can find that tweet up at our Facebook page. This is good. As you said, succinct, well put kind of both challenges and opportunities 
that are facing the church after COVID-19 is defeated, the way David Cassidy put it. Well, coming up next, we're going to end the show from NBC News. COVID quarantine and closures are creating a hierarchy of grievance. We'll talk about this hierarchy of grievance next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today on this Monday. wanted to end the show today uh, about from, from um, an opinion piece I saw at NBCNews.com uh, by Amy Klein that simply said this, COVID quarantine and closures are creating a hierarchy of gr- a hierarchy of grievance. We need compassion. Why don't you get us into this? Because I think this is a really important thing that we all just kind of need to wrestle with. Well, and I I'd be really curious before I dive into it, like why why you think this is so important? Before I get into like the nitty gritty of the article, like what what about this to you was like the the right reason to end the show? I'd be curious to get into your brain there a little bit. I like that she turns it towards compassion because I do mm-hmm. think, especially online or this and that, there we we can without even knowing we're doing it get into this quote unquote hierarchy of grievance. We're like, oh, you think you've had it bad? You should see my yeah, life. Right. Oh, you think you've had it bad? You should see my life. And that just gets mm-hmm. this weird competitiveness. She writes here: Are we competing in the pain Olympics? Like, and so mm. as opposed to going, Hey, I'm really sorry for what you're going through. You go, whatever you're going through, you know what I'm going through. And there's always somebody going through worse. And so I think the reason I wanted to end the show with this is her tort, her kind of challenge to go from grievance and kind of outdoing one another to compassion. And I do think this is something I see and hear, whether it be on Facebook or uh, because once we think we don't have, you know, we kind of rate low on the grievances, then we go, I, I don't know, I, I probably shouldn't even talk to anybody about it. I should kind of keep this in. Mm. Uh, and so I do think this idea from Amy Klein about compassion instead of this hierarchy of grievances is, is really a, a a challenge and a good thing to think about. That's good, man. All right, let me let me just begin how she begins. Uh, she begins, quote, and, uh, and just like that, we're back in quarantine. I posted on Facebook on Sunday. Send chocolate. We'd been in quarantine for three days the previous week because someone in my daughter's in-person kindergarten class had been exposed to COVID-19. So everyone had been sent home while waiting for the student's negative test result. Now my daughter would be in quarantine this week as well because her bus driver had contracted the virus, which, gosh, I'll say it again, man. It Quarantine with a three and two year old is tough, but not having to navigate the school stuff yep. is... Yeah, that, that feels I'm I'm grateful for that. <laughs> According to the school, the bus driver was fine. I, on the other hand, was not between the quarantine and the holiday break. I was looking at five weeks lockdown in our Manhattan, New York City apartment, trying to work with my husband and daughter underfoot in the middle of winter. I really needed <laughs> chocolate. <laughs> I could send you some shows to binge watch. A friend commented on the post. I wanted to laugh or scream. I don't need shows to watch. I need childcare, space and time to do my work. That's when I realized we're all having very different pandemic experiences, and that has led to a hierarchy of grievance with everyone competing in their suffering. The collective outrage that greeted celebrities trying to commiserate with plebes like uh, like us. Plebes, is that right? Yes. Plebes? Yes. <laughs> like us because they were holed up in their million-dollar mansions or on yachts sailing around the world has now been parceled out to friends and family whose COVID-19 circumstances appear better than our own. I'll stop there for a second. Have you seen this is a little snarkier and directed more at churches but have you seen the uh the tweet where someone's like you know three hundred thousand plus americans dead 
And then it says churches like what a wacky year it's been. 2020 has been nuts. Uh, <laughs> I haven't seen that. No, but and I was like, oof, yeah. yeah, that's there's some truth to that, too, yeah, man. Yeah. I um, have you experienced some of this like in your own life or, or community where people are almost, I don't know, like making excuses for their grief or like apologizing, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Like, ah, oh, sorry, I know that other people have it worse. Like, do you have you navigated some of this yourself? Uh, yeah, I've almost t- felt it. And maybe this is why I put this up here, because I've almost felt it from the other side. Like people say on Facebook mm-hmm. or Twitter, complaining about their kid being out of school or complaining about this or that. And I want to write back. I don't because I would want I don't want to be that guy. But I almost want to comment back and be like, listen, you don't have <laughs> it so bad. Like things aren't so bad. Right, I right. find myself going, let's just calm down here a little bit, kind of putting a hierarchy of grievances on other Mm. people. Uh, And so I have seen that, uh, you know, uh, that I felt that urge within myself to be like, Hey, you don't have it that bad. You know, it's the old, it's the old, when you're, when your parents, when you were growing up and you would say something and your mom would go, Hey, they're starving kids in Africa. And you're like, yeah, right. Right. Yeah. never mind. (laughs) Right. Uh, Like that was supposed to shut everything down. And, uh, and and so I have felt that a little bit inside, uh, inside my own soul when other people complain about, you know, Oh, you know, we, we couldn't go out to eat this week or we couldn't do this or we couldn't do that. Yeah. I think what's interesting about this is, um, I can really see both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there, there is some wisdom to keeping things in perspective. You're like, Hey, the fact that you're still employed or that you have a home that you can stay in or that you could afford Instacart to have groceries delivered. Right. To, you know what I mean? Like, but the other side though, the the part for me, I guess that wants to be careful that we don't try to superimpose our mental health journey on someone else. Mm-hmm. Say like, why well, hey, grief is grief. So for people to say, I mean, Brene Brown talks a lot about, you know, the difference between empathy and sympathy. Sympathy tends to say, yeah, I, I know you, I mean, even for like really horrific things, I know that you, you lost a child, but at least you had a child to begin with, right? At least you had a child to love. You're like, oof, that is, not helpful. I get where that, yeah. I get where that posture is birthed out of, but it's not right. Exactly like what you said, not helpful. I do wonder if like we do ourselves a disservice or at least potentially some damage by like being unwilling to identify both ends of the spectrum. Yes. Other people have it worse. Yes. My grief is valid. Yes. Yeah. That we don't do very well. It tends to only be one or the other. Either you're spoiled and entitled and you need to stop whining about whatever little thing you're dealing with because people have it way worse, or it's a constant woe is me and a real sincere belief that no one on planet earth is affected more than you are in this moment. Obviously both those extremes aren't great. I'd be curious why you think it's so difficult for us to kind of live in that in-between space. Hmm. Yeah, it is kind of a black and white thing, right? Like you either are doing well or not. It is hard. In fact, I don't think you read ahead, but what you just said is exactly how she ends this. She said, how do you avoid (laughs) compassion fatigue is show compassion, even if you don't feel like it. And then later on, she goes on to say, this will not only help the recipient, but also the giver by allocating compassion and empathy to others. No matter how big or small their hardship is, we gain a sense of control over our own struggle. Finding time to show kindness to others during COVID can actually make us feel better about ourselves and strengthen our ability to cope. So it seems I can feel bad for myself about my five weeks at home and send food to frontline workers. Maybe Hmm. I'll even suggest something to those scraping the bottom of their Netflix barrel. Read a book. (laughs) I love that from an author. (laughs) But I just love that. Like when we show compassion for others, it doesn't mean that we're saying we have it good. We can be saying, no, it's hard for me and hard for you. 
and I can show yeah. compassion. It doesn't have to be either you show compassion for me or I show compassion for you. But her point is when I show compassion for others, uh, it can kind of give me this perspective. I, I, I also like that phrase, and we'll end with this, compassion fatigue. Uh, you know, yeah. we talked about COVID fatigue, uh, this idea of like, all right, I'm done with even caring how other people are doing. Uh, hmm. I think is a real thing. And I think something we need to be careful about. So uh, this is up at our Facebook page, this whole idea of hierarchy of grievance and compassion and what role compassion, com- compassion plays not only in helping others, but in helping ourselves as we all go through uh, the days and the, and the weeks here of the COVID-19 pandemic. Well, Monday is in the books. It is one day closer to Christmas, so it's coming. It's coming. But we'll be back together tomorrow from (laughs) 4 until 6. We hope that you choose to join us. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.